It was the summer of 1976. I was a uh, relatively new appointed sergeant in the Marine Corps and had just secured off-base housing in, in uh, North Carolina with one of my fellow Marines, a boy by the name of Rick. Rick was a good old boy from Amarillo, Texas. He had joined the Marines with his best friend growing up in high school, and his high school friend had just married his sweetheart, through who he dated all through high school, just before they both went into boot camp. And as luck would have it, they both got sent to the same base, and so were able to continue to be friends. Unfortunately, Rick's friend Russ, shortly after he got there, got sent out on what we called a six-month float. That was a six-month deployment where he was sent out on a ship where they did maneuvers and war games and so forth. So he would be away from his wife for those six months, and he asked Rick to just check on, in on his wife occasionally. Even though she lived on base and had little need of a car, there were occasions where she needed some assistance. And so Rick, as a good friend to both of them, dutifully did so. And on one such visit, Rick discovered that Sheila's best, um, that uh, Russell's wife's best friend, Sheila, had been in a car accident the prior day. A drunk driver who was uninsured had ran a red light and did significant damage to her car. It was an old car, and as many of you have been in the military know, the military didn't pay real well, and so they had just carried liability on that car, which meant that they were going to have to pay for the repairs themselves, and it would be at least six months, if not more, before they could pay to get the repairs done. It wasn't a problem for Russ's wife because she lived on base and could walk to most of the amenities. But for Sheila, it was a real dilemma. She lived out in the country. She had two small girls who were involved in ballet and other activities. She had to drive miles to get to a grocery store, to do any type of shopping, to go to a doctor's appointment, to go to a dentist appointment. She was, in effect, stranded. And Rick being the good old boy that he was from Texas and a real southern gentleman, said whenever possible, he'd take his time out on nights, evenings, weekends to try and help out, to play chauffeur for them. And so he did. Um, so Ru Rick routinely stopped by to see if they needed anything, to take, give, uh, give Sheila a ride to the grocery store, get the girls to ballet lessons, and even to take them to church on Sunday. And Rick... For that matter, none of us were really frequent churchgoers. Well, at the end of the first Sunday, the church leadership stopped by Sheila's house after church that day. And they said, who is this young man that we've seen you around town this past week with and who brought you to church? And Sheila told them, well, he's, he's simply a friend of a friend. He's trying to help out while my car is in the shop. And the leadership said, well, you need to be very careful about this. It's not appropriate for a married woman and a single man to be spending unsupervised time together, and we need to warn you against this type of situation. And with that, they prayed for her, and they left. By the next Sunday, of course, there had been more sightings of Rick and Sheila about town. And in the fellowship time after church, this was a, a small Southern Baptist church, and they had a small room, fellowship room outside of the main sanctuary where they had coffee and cookies and would talk. Rick and Sheila heard many, many conversations about 
What were they up to? Where they'd been seen? And what was going on? And it was disturbing, and even more disturbing, because it was clear that many of those conversations were meant to be overheard by them. By the third Sunday, Sheila was informed after the services by the pastor that the entire church was talking about this inappropriate relationship and that she needed to terminate it immediately. And if she failed to terminate it, she would be relieved as a Sunday school teacher and that the leadership would send a letter to her husband who was stationed over in Japan at the time letting him know about this inappropriate relationship. Sheila was between a rock and a hard place. She felt alone, scared, insulted, and angry. She didn't know what to do. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that the Bible is a comprehensive manual. Not just a list of no-nos and things that we shouldn't do, but is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God can be equipped for God's good work. And we specifically thank you for this passage, which isn't just a jumble of things, last-minute things that Paul wants to communicate to us, but rather has real meaning for us and for our lives today. It tells us what not to do, what to do, and how to support and encourage those in the church with us. We pray that you would grant us wisdom and that your word would be heard in our hearts. Amen. Although every, every single culture that we know of has sayings about idleness. The Romans said, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. Jewish rabbis taught that the man who fails to teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. Isaac Watts wrote, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do, which is probably where most of our parents got the expression, idle hands are the devil's workshop. <clears throat> Idleness. In Ezekiel, we're told, Ezekiel 16, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Wait a minute. I thought Sodom was destroyed because of sexual sins. But that's not what it says here. What it says in Ezekiel 16 is that their sins were pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did nothing to aid the poor and needy. And in Ecclesiastes 10, we're told, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, indolence the house leaks. Idleness, laziness, indolence, sloth, sloth. It conjures up a vision of something not just lazy and apathetic, but something seedy and sinister and foul. Kind of reminds me of New Orleans, personally. Uh, but it's not a word that we use a lot today. We don't hear people saying, quit being a sloth. Or, you know, your behavior is really slothy. Is that the right term? I have to ask an English teacher. We just don't use it. Sloth just doesn't seem to be in our context today. Because, indeed, things are very different today than they were in the first century in the 
Thessalonica, whatever, church. In the first century church. Well, as believers, we know that Christ may return at any time. Not very many of us are sitting around expecting him to arrive eminently. On the contrary, we are all busy. I don't know anyone who's not busy. In the midst of racing to work, getting our kids off to school, school activities, church activities, work activities, functions, socials, emailing, texting, twittering, we don't have time to be idle. And with the encroachment of technology, to take it even further, where we have cell phones, Blackberries, PDAs, portable computers, and Internet access ubiquitously across this country, we're often unable to leave our work behind even when we're on vacation. I suspect there's a few spouses and children in here, my family's nodding their head, who could attest to the fact that sometimes work seems to go along with us even when we're supposed to be relaxing especially my daughter nodding her head over there. So, what are we to do? Well, many of you are aware of Dante's Divine Comedy and the exposition of the seven deadly sins. A recent online poll asked, of the seven deadly sins, this one is my biggest failing. 35% of Americans said lust. 18% said anger. 12% said pride, 10% said envy, 10% sloth, 9% gluttony, and 6% greed. I wonder if they did this poll now after all the recent collapse, if greed would still be way at the bottom. But at any rate, obviously sloth is still very low on the list. It appears that we don't think we have a problem with sloth. In fact, MTV did a special several years ago, and they interviewed 10 top entertainers. And they said, basically, what do you think of the seven deadly sins? And the answer almost overwhelmingly was, we don't think they're sins at all. And in fact, the list is just dumb. Well, like my mother used to say, consider the source. It's MTV. Anyway, given its low ranking... And given our busy lifestyles, is sloth and idleness even an issue in today's fast-paced society? Medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said, Sloth is a sluggishness of the mind which neglects to begin good. It is evil in its effect if it so oppresses man as to draw him away entirely from good deeds. Neglects to begin good. That's a little different definition than what I might have come up with for sloth. In other words, sloth is not just the desire for ease, but it's also the act of doing something or the act of doing nothing instead of the will of God at the expense of doing the calling of God. It's neglecting to begin good. The slothful person is unwilling to do what God wants, either because it takes too much effort to do it, too much time to do it, or because, you know, I have other things I'd rather be doing with my time. Sloth is a sin when it slows down or halts our ability to extend the energy that God wants us to expend on pursuing his call. So whether I'm doing nothing or whether I'm doing something, If I'm not doing what God wants me to do, I'm idle in God's eyes. 
I would assert that busyness is the new idleness. I thought about getting a t-shirt made up with that. Busyness is the new idol, idleness. Why do I say that? Well, in Loudoun County, and probably in most parts of America, it is often busyness that causes us to neglect to begin what is good. It's not that we don't want to do more. Oh, we want to do more. We see that neighbor. We see that brother in the church. We see that member of the family, and we think, I really should do something about it. But we're too busy. And we're too busy to read our Bible. And we're too busy to pray for our brothers. And we're too busy to go to a Bible study or prepare a meal for somebody. Maybe help with a leaky faucet. Give that person a ride. Prepare a meal for somebody in the family. Maybe mentor that young husband or wife who could use some mentoring. We are just too busy. Busyness is the new idleness. In this morning's passage, when Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, we command you to keep from idlers, he used a powerful word that in Greek meant a military order handed down from a superior officer. And when he added, we hear that some among you are idle, he was addressing those who were not bearing fruit. He wasn't just talking about those sitting. He was saying, guys, don't just hang out at the well of the city gates. And he wasn't saying, get up off your butt and go out there and plant some plant in the fields and build a wall. What he was really saying was, there's work that God has for you to do. And you are compelled, you are commanded to be doing it. In fact, Paul started this second letter to the Thessalonians by actually complimenting many of the believers, saying, we ourselves boast among the churches about you. He encourages them, saying, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that his power may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. I'm convinced that if Paul were talking to the 21st century today, he wouldn't be saying, keep away from the idlers. He'd be saying, keep away from the frenetic, frenzied, self-focused, status-climbing people who are just trying to get ahead of the world, uh, in the world, who are concerned about their car and the size of their home, rather than the mansion that God is building them in heaven. And as Henry David Thoreau points out, it's not enough to be busy. So are the ants. The question is, what are we busy about? So, what does this passage tell us about what we should be busy about? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 13, where he says, And as for you, brothers, never tire of what is doing right. That's pretty straightforward, right? Everybody's questions answered. We can have a final song, wrap it up, and get to the picnic, right? I don't know about you, but I had to think a minute about what that's supposed to mean. And really, what is it exactly I'm supposed to do with that statement? Never tire of what is doing right. When James 2, we're told, suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food was there. And if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about that personal need. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, 
is dead. And he goes on to say in verse 20, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. James tells us that faith and action are intrinsically linked together. And that faith is made complete by what we do with it. So let's bring it a little closer to home and get it a little more practical. How does this body, how does Potomac Hills react when someone needs some help with a house repair, with a meal for a family, when a spouse is in the hospital, or maybe a ride to the grocery store? Well, like Paul, I'd like to boast a little bit about this church. Um, Rich Coffeen said in the Sunday school this morning that this church is unique in many ways, and I have to agree. This church has demonstrated again and again a willingness to reach out and help each other. When a ride's needed or even a car, it's often, that need is often met. When there's uh, repairs needed to a home, the diaconate is frequently pulling people together to go and take care of it. And even to the extent of sometimes when there's temporary financial support needed, it's typically delivered. The diaconate routinely provides those types of assistance, home repairs, moving, etc. And many of you know this because you've been touched by those efforts. Could we do more? Either individually or corporately. Of course we could. And using myself as an example, while I don't like to think of myself as a Christian sloth, I have to admit there are times when I'm not starting a good work. There are times where I just feel too tired, too busy, too worried about my bills or maybe the vacation I want to take to apply God's gifts to God's people. And the current economic environment is likely to test our love for one another even more. There are many people here who have a great need some we know about and some we don't. And the question is, are we individual or corporately looking at those people and saying, good luck, I wish you well, I'll pray for you. Too bad about that good old boy. And then walking away as we ourselves are blessed with time, skills, and financial security. So what about you? Are you active or are you idle for the Lord right now? Has God provided you resources, whether they're time or talents or money, whatever it is, that are sitting idle or being frittered away rather than helping a brother further the kingdom? Are you failing to start a good work? Are you like me, a Christian sloth? Finally, what about the church's responsibility in here? Remember that this letter was written to the entire church in Thessalonica. Got it out that time. Not just to any individual, not just to the leader, but to all of the membership. What is the church to do? Well, this passage tells us, we hear that some among you are idle and they're not busy. 
And he goes on to say, if anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel shamed. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. When's the last time you looked at a brother and sister or sister and said, you know, we have some needs in this church and you have some times and talents that I think could really benefit this body. Do you think you could help out with X or assist in Y? The deacons do it all the time, as do the elders. We do that because, number one, we're charged with trying to build up the body, and number two, quite frankly, it's self-serving. We don't want to lighten the load, share the joy. Um, Or, when's the last time that you looked at, at a brother in the church and said, you know, I've noticed something's changed. Is there something I can be praying for you about? Or, you know... I see something going on in your life that concerns me. Would you like to talk about that? Those are messy conversations we don't like to start. And again, many times, the elders and the deacons are engaged in those conversations. But Paul is calling on each and every one of us to be out there, to be observant, to be looking for those opportunities. It's the message to all of us, but it's also the message to each of us. We all have a role to play. And when Paul is instructing believers that our job is not just about setting the right example, but it's also about disciplining fellow believers when they're not living right and getting engaged with the church when needs arise. The church is to intrude on each other. We're to hold each other accountable and to sit idly by while a brother is in need or in sin is a sin. So, Does that mean that the church has the right to intrude and interfere into my life? Yes, it does. When you become a member of the church, you agree to submit to its discipline and to the accountability that goes with it. A lot of people will use that as an excuse not to join a church. Oh, we're willing to give up our Sunday mornings most of the time and maybe tithe a little some of the time. But when it comes to our private life, the hand goes up and the sign goes on the door, keep out. We believe in the separation of church and state. Keep the church down the road and the state of my life, the state of my family, the state of my home, separate. It's none of your business. But that's not what we're called to do. In fact, all through the New Testament, we're told again and again that we're to hold each other accountable. And that's probably one of the messiest things that we're asked to do. And you wouldn't think it, but sometimes it seems like it's the bravest thing to do, to actually get involved in somebody else's life. And yes, it is messy to hold somebody else accountable because we're all sinners, and we all know we have sins. And sometimes it's hard to try and get past the embarrassment of our own sins to talk about how we might help somebody else. But that's what we're called to do. In fact, the church not only has the right to do it, but we're commanded to confront the issues within the body focused on the goal of restoration and the, and the growth of God's kingdom. So, where's this all going? Let's go back and let's use this passage and let's go back and look at Rick and Sheila and the church. And let's see if we can see, understand what happened here. 
Well, I can tell you, the friends of, of Rick, who, by the way, were sitting home, not at church, heard about the discipline of the church, we were incensed. This was exactly why we didn't go to church. This is why we didn't believe in churches. This is why we weren't going to participate, because the church was full of pharisaical, unloving hypocrites who would rather sit on the sidelines and wag their tongues than reach out and help a mother in need. It was a non-church member who was helping her with a ride. Who did they think they were? to make accusations about her, to impugn her integrity and fidelity, and to interfere in her private life and threaten her marriage. We just couldn't believe it. That's why we didn't want to belong to a church. Well, they might have well forced her to wear a scarlet letter. Some of you will get that reference, some won't. Um, But Rick and Sheila felt hurt and righteously indignant. They would not be falsely accused They would not be bullied, and they would not accept the church's counsel and submit to the discipline. When Sheila refused to terminate any further association with Rick, the pastor announced from the pulpit the very next Sunday to the entire church membership that they were to not associate with her in order that, as Paul stated, she might be ashamed. And a letter from the church leadership was indeed sent to her husband overseas in Japan that Sheila had a questionable relationship with this other man. In fact, over a period of time, several loving church members, friends of the husband, took it upon themselves to write their own letters about what might be going on and the continued sightings of Rick and Sheila about town. And by the way, if you don't get the reference to busybodies in the earlier passage... There it is. Sheila was effectively cut off from her church and faced suspicion from her spouse. Over the next several weeks, the tone of the letters between husband and wife went from subtle suspicion to outright accusation. Sheila was hurt and disappointed in both her husband and her church. The only person supporting her, the only person giving her aid, the only person standing by her side, And fighting to protect her character was Rick. And together they supported and comforted each other throughout the continuing attacks. And believe me, her two young daughters heard it as well. By the time Sheila's husband rotated back from overseas, divorce papers had been filed, and Rick and Sheila were planning their wedding. Well, church had performed its disciplinary role, as Paul had instructed. They isolated her, and they shamed her. So what went wrong? Why didn't the church discipline work? I mean, if we follow the Bible, it's supposed to work, right? What went wrong here? Well, Sheila and her husband were members of the church and had indeed agreed to submit to the church discipline. So was it her lack of submission? The church had valid concerns relating to the amount of unsupervised time that a married woman, Sheila, was spending with a single man, Rick. And I would agree that the church was within its purview to counsel her on that dangerous arrangement. As indeed, it was a slippery slope, as the end of the story points out. They were also within their purview to express concerns about her teaching Sunday school teacher. 
teaching Sunday school. In the church, even a hint of impropriety can be a very damaging thing. And while it may seem like they were overstepping their bounds and totally inappropriate intrusion on the personal life to some to send a letter to her husband about a possible relationship, I would even argue that the church's concern was not unreasonable and that they were sincerely attempting to restore her marriage. Some may disagree with that. I'm sure my view of them wasn't quite as rosy at the time. But what's missing here? What's missing? Weren't they doing what Paul said? Why didn't the discipline work? They shamed her. But did they treat her as a Christian sister? Or did they treat her as an enemy? Remember, Paul said, treat them as a brother, not as an enemy. Where was the grace? Where was the service? Where was the love? Sheila had a real physical need. She was stranded. She couldn't get around. She couldn't even get to the grocery store to feed her family. And the church said, go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but did nothing to meet the physical need. In the Divine Comedy that we mentioned earlier, Dante Alighieri identifies the seven deadly sins and they're categorized into three separate groups. The first group, perverted love. The second group, excessive love of earthly goods. And the third group, insufficient love. Perverted love is pride, envy, and wrath or anger. Excessive love of earthly goods, avarice or greed, gluttony, and lust. And the third group, insufficient love, all alone, is sloth. That really struck me. Sloth, idleness, is really insufficient love. In other words, I have more compassion for my wants, my needs, my desire, my time, my money, than for the needs of my brother. That's what James was saying. If you love God, you'll love his family. And out of that love, there will be a purifying work that will be completed in you. Rather than judging or gossiping, I believe if a member or members of that church would have provided assistance for that transportation need, this story would have had a very different ending. As James instructed, faith not accompanied by action is dead. As Sheila And Sheila died to the church that day because the church cared more about judgment than they did about service and love. Idleness is insufficient love. Failing to start a good work is insufficient love. When we ignore the needs of believers because we're too lazy or because we're too busy or because we're too focused on meeting our wants and needs rather than others' needs, we're allowing God's gifts and resources to sit idle. Our love is insufficient. And it's stunning to think that an entire family was destroyed for lack of a ride. 
and perhaps lost to the faith forever. You never know how some small action might further God's kingdom or some failure to start a good work constrains it. Unless you think this is just about some other family who needs help, we need to think about our own families also. What about your home? Are you avoiding beginning a good work at home? Are you worried about meeting the need of your spouse, training up your children, because you're more focused on watching TV, improving your golf score, doing more at work and climbing the ladder at work? Because, you know, often those things are much easier and more fulfilling to do than dealing with those hard interpersonal things that go on in a household. It's even more stunning to think that your spouse, your son, your daughter, your brother in the church could be lost to the faith just because the lack of a simple act, because we failed to take a few moments of time to help them in a need, because we were too lazy or too busy. Are your acts of love sufficient? May God forgive us for insufficient love. We need to pray. Father, I know that I don't have sufficient love. My love is inadequate for my brother, for my family, and for you, Lord. And Lord, I pray today that you would give each one of us love that compels us to action, a love for our brother that helps us see him and her as a method for doing your work and following through on your calling, and that we would take joy in that, that we would give of our time and our resources, our talents and our abilities with great joy, Lord, knowing that we are furthering your kingdom and perhaps, just perhaps, saving that family. And we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.